invite you to take your Bibles out, turn to the book of Ephesians. Last week, we uh, introduced the idea of Christianity as a way, a way of life. And through these Sundays in the season of Lent, we are going to be talking about this way that Jesus gives to us for, for our life, for our living. And uh, each week, we'll be looking at one unique aspect of this way. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives, and gave gifts to his people. What then does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What is the church? I'd like for you to think about that for about 15 seconds. Um, On your bulletin and your note sheet, Right out. This is just between you and the Lord. Um, what is the church? This could be your first Sunday here. You may have no idea what the church is. What is the church? Just write that out. So as you are, um, as you're doing that, uh, let's think about what may be um, some common answers. Uh, and some answers may be common between people who are within the church and people who are without, outside of the church. For example, you may have written down that the church is a place of religious devotion, and it certainly is that. It's more than that, but it certainly is that. Um, the church is a place where people come and express their their religious views, their, their faith. A secondary uh, idea is that the church is a place of religious instruction. Uh, the church is an entity that passes on the religious instructions of Christianity, and it's not uncommon when uh, young parents have children, and those, those kids get a little bit older. It's not uncommon for them to start coming to church. And one of the answer, or one of the responses that I hear from time to time is we are here because we would like our children to have 
uh, the, the values of Christianity instilled into them um, so that they will hopefully live out certain behaviors. Uh, if you talk to a skeptic today or a cynical person today, they might say, you know, the church is a place for you to get judged by religious hypocrites. You know, people who say one thing, act a different way. It's where you go to get judged. Some people would say that about the church. Um, so if you were turned to people within the church and ask, what is a church? Well, uh, and you, maybe you wrote this down, a family of faith. The church is a family of faith, the family of Christians. And this captures something really important about Christianity and about the church. Uh, and that is the church is more than a collection of just individuals. It's, it's more than just a gathering spot where, where different people come to, uh, to practice their individual faith. It's much more than that. The church is a family of faith. We are given a new relationship to one another when we are adopted into God's family as God's children. That makes us, in a, really, in, a, in a real sense, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Getting really churchy, and you may have written this down, getting really churchy, you, you might say that the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. We are not just brothers and sisters, but we are members of one body, and the Apostle Paul likens uh, members of the body to different body parts each with a different function. So the leg functions differently than the ear, which functions differently in the body as the liver. We each carry out a different function. And when we do that together, we sustain the life of the church. And let's be honest, nobody wants to be the gallbladder or the appendix of the body of Christ, do they? No. But in Ephesians, Paul talks about a slightly different definition of the church. I'm wondering if you wrote it down. Um, let me flip back a couple of chapters in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read uh, verses 19 through 22, and listen to what Paul says about the church. What is the church? And this is what he writes in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. See, Paul is writing to a location where there are Christians of Jewish background and Christians of Gentile background with very little in common between them. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him. Now get this. What is the church? The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What is the church? We become a temple in which God lives by his spirit. And I think this helps us to understand and appreciate what Paul writes in chapter 4 when he talks about the way of unity. The way of Christ, the way of being a Christian, is the way of unity. And what I'd like to do is share three things about unity that the Apostle Paul writes about in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And point one is this. 
Unity in Christ. Whoa, that is interesting font. I think I might have just distracted from the sermon. <laughs> my family warned me last week, hey, the font was kind of funny. That is not my intent to put up a funny font on the screen. So somehow between my laptop and that computer, um, something a little more creative has come out. All right. So if you can't read that, this is what it says. Unity in Christ is the church's highest calling. Now let me tell you why I believe that. First, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is our highest calling as a church. Not awesome worship. Awesome worship is great. That's not the church's highest calling. Uh, receiving wonderful preaching every once in a while. That may happen here. Um, that is not the church's highest calling. Uh, not even our sacramental celebration is our highest calling because the Apostle Paul, in another letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, said that if you partake of the Lord's Supper without upholding unity, that you actually eat and drink judgment on yourself because in that church there were some Christians that were eating all of the sacrament and not leaving any for anybody else. And the unity wasn't there. And so the sacrament was not a conveyor of God's grace. God wants a united church. One of the most amazing statements on this is in Jesus' prayer to the Father, which is recorded in John chapter 17. So Jesus is praying for his disciples and those who would listen, follow his disciples, and this is what he prays to God. John chapter 17, verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. And I want you to think about that for a moment because it's amazing. The reason why I turn that to that verse is to realize just how strong the unity that Christ desires for us is. You know, people have, uh, they've struggled with making sense of the Trinity throughout the centuries. One of the early church statements, it's been around for 1,800 years, is that God is one substance and three persons. That God is um, so united that we would never say that there are three gods, and yet God is exists in three persons. So we would never say that God is just one that occasionally operates as the Father, occasionally operates as the Son, occasionally operates as the Holy Spirit. There's one substance, one essence of God in three persons. And what is Jesus saying? He is saying, I am praying, Father, that they may be one just as you and I are one. The, the intimacy, if you can imagine it, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Trinity, that is the unity that Jesus is praying for his church to have. And it is when the church displays that kind of unity 
that we can be this attracting light that Jesus says that we are to an increasingly fractured and divided world. So how do we receive that unity? How do we live into to that kind of unity? Well, let me point out two ways from Paul um, first. And this is the second point in your, your sermon outline. Uh, the first way is this. The pathway to unity is humble love. The pathway to unity is humble love. Listen to verse 2 again. And I want you to notice four words in this verse. Paul says in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's what you are to do to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Be humble and gentle, patient and forbearing. So what are we to do? We are to walk in those four ways. Those four words are like stepping stones along this pathway of unity. Walk in humility and gentleness and you can fill these in, patience and forbearance. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. And those words all work together, don't they? Um, I want to think of these terms, these words in terms of building unity in the church. So humility wasn't... Necessary first word humility the humility was not necessarily a virtue in the ancient Roman world And so therefore when Paul is writing to these Christians To show all humility. It's not like they would have been saying. Oh, of course yeah, Humility is a good thing. Humility was not a virtue in the ancient Roman world When Paul told Christians to show humility That would have been whoa, that's kind of countercultural and if we really think about what humility is, I think it's kind of countercultural today as well. Now, you may have heard this saying about humility. Humility is, is not necessarily thinking of yourself less, rather it's, no, thinking less of yourself, rather it's thinking of yourself less. And I think that's kind of a catchy phrase. Humility is not necessarily thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I, but I actually think it's both. I think it, I think it is. Uh, in some ways, thinking less of yourself. I mean, not to the point where you're just beating up on yourself and, and um, cratering. Let me tell you why I think it does mean thinking less of yourself. Having humility means you know that you need others in your life. You need the Lord in your life. You cannot make it through life on your own. And that way, yes, humility is thinking of yourself less. It means you don't believe that you have all the right answers. It means you don't believe that uh, your way is always the best way. In church ministry, let's talk about how we apply this as a church. In church ministry, having humility includes knowing that I need others to come alongside with me as we do ministry together because... I'm not smart enough and I'm not good enough to do this on my own. We do it together in unity. You need unity. And humility means thinking of yourself less. Yes. 
And this is difficult because in our culture, we have wired ourselves to think of ourselves first. There is such a priority placed on getting yourself ahead or putting yourself in the right position in this this position, you're in this position, or your family members in a position to be noticed or um, a position that will set you, you or your family members up for success. That is a common practice in our culture today. And so showing humility in ministry can be a challenge sometimes because we have trained ourselves to think, what is my personal preference? What is the preferred position that I want to be in? And we know stories of how each person focusing on his or her personal preference has has led to all kinds of church feuds. You know, what's the best color for the carpet? Or, you know, how big of a cross should be up there? Or where, you know, drums, no drums. What's my personal preference? Humility is thinking of yourself less. Think of this mixed church in Ephesus. Jews and Gentiles meeting together. Gentiles being non-Jewish people. Different culture, different customs. And now God is saying, I'm doing something among you. I am bringing very different people together to make you one. So they are people who are naturally different, extremely different, who are enemies even. And God is making them one church. So there was plenty of opportunities in that environment to be prioritizing one's personal preference. And Paul says to them, rather, have humility, show humility. So let me tell you one way that we can show humility by um, thinking of ourselves less and building unity. Show humility by being aware of the different person or the new person in the room. Show humility by thinking first of the different person or the new person in the room. Think of, you know, our time together in this worship service or gathering out before the worship or after the worship. Um, You know, when I focus on my personal preference, what do I do? I look for my friends. I look for people that I am comfortable with. I start up a conversation. I, I look for my, my comfort zone. That's where I go because I'm thinking of my personal preference. Instead, I think Paul would, because remember who he's writing to, people who are very different from one another that God is bringing together. Show humility. Show humility. Look for the different person or the new person that is in the room. Um, every week in our worship service, we have this moment together as a church and it is consistently in church surveys it is reported as the most fear time in a worship service can you guess what time of the worship service that is that's when we ask you to stand up and greet one another over and over again people say that is their most fear time during a worship service why because feeling like the outsider in a room is one of the most horrific feelings that there is Paul's writing to this church of much different people and saying, I want you to be one. So I want you to notice the different person in that room and make that 
different or new person feel like a family member. So that's one way that we can think of ourselves less to bring unity to our church. Next word, gentleness. So show all humility, but also show gentleness. Usually when this word appears in the New Testament, it's, it's just listed as a, as a virtue, like by itself, be gentle. And we're not quite sure what is meant by that, but occasionally it's paired with another action. Be gentle while you're doing this, in other words. And um, a couple of times we hear this, be gentle as you correct one another. Show gentleness in your correction of one another. The word for gentle in ancient Roman culture was used to describe domesticated animals. So the I'm not an ancient Roman expert, so did they have dogs? Did they have cats? I don't know. But whatever the family pet was, the domesticated animal, that was known as a gentle animal as opposed to the wild animal or the, the non-domesticated animal. And they were the tame animals, the, the, the gentle ones. So in ministry together... Whenever we provide correction, and it could be, hey, I think you're out of line, or it could be, hey, try it this way instead. Be gentle. Be like a, be like a golden retriever towards one another in correction, as opposed to the wild wolf. The wild wolf just ah, jumps out and leaps out at someone. Don't leap out at one another in the church. Patience, the third word. Be patient. The famous uh, fourth century preacher, John Chrysostom, he said that this word patience um, comes from the words meaning to have a wide and big soul that doesn't get troubled by annoyances. Have a wide and big soul. See, sometimes the annoyances that we experience now, let's be real this morning. Annoyances can be people, right? <laughs> Annoying people who, there may be, here's what I'm saying, there may be a personality clash between people within a church. Have you ever experienced that? A personality clash? Like people rubbing one another the wrong way? Some some tendency that just kind of gets under your skin a little bit about someone else? Maybe they talk a little bit about themselves too much, or maybe they... Yeah, a little boastful, or maybe you're the boastful person that talks about him or herself too much. Uh, get under your under one another's skins a little bit, and by showing patience, what are we doing? We're, we want to be a big, wide soul, so that we're not we're not disturbed. I thought about dropping ice cubes into my glass of iced tea. When I do that, that small little glass of iced tea. You know, water's going to, the tea's going to splash everywhere when you drop the ice cubes in. That's, that's not a big and wide soul. That's a small little soul. That's, you know, a big wide soul is like dropping ice cubes into a swimming pool. You're so filled as a giant swimming pool that there's, there's no disturbances whatsoever when you drop in the ice cubes. So be that big wide soul that's filled with God's spirit and God's love and so that we can show patience to one another. And then finally, forbearance. You could think of it as finishing well with what you have. With all humility and gentleness and patience, finish well 
with what you have. Thinking about our churches, Hope Church, finish well with who God has given us. Over the years, increasingly, I've become aware that the people who are here are the people that God has brought here. You are here this morning because God has brought you here. Our, our new members that we celebrated this morning are here because God has brought them here. God has brought you here. So finish well with what God has given you. So God is saying through Paul, I am giving all kinds of people to you, people who are different from you, people who might not be the first person you naturally would, would go out towards. But that's okay, God says, because I love them. And I want you to finish well with who I've given you by showing humility and gentleness and patience. Don Carson puts it like this. He says, the church is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. And what binds us together is not common education, not common race, not common income levels or common politics, not common nationality, common accents, common jobs. No, Christians come together not because of anything that we have in common, except that we have all been saved by Jesus Christ. We have one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, and that is strong enough to change our hearts so that natural enemies can be turned into natural friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, in this family of faith. But our unity is not just expressed through loving and, and, and uh, humble relationships. That's one pathway to humility is through humility. Uh, one pathway to unity is through humility. But notice in verse 7, Paul gives us something else. Paul writes, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now that doesn't mean that some people have received just a little bit of grace from God and others have received a whole lot of grace. Here's what it is saying. God does something different in each of our lives through His grace. God gives gifts through His Holy Spirit that... As Christians, we can then use in acts of service. And so a second way that Christ works unity in us is this. Unity is expressed through acts of service. Now, verse 7 can be a, a favorite one for preachers. It could be a favorite preacher verse because there's lots of work in the church to be done. And this verse tells us there is work, there are workers out there and they've been given gifts. And if you've been to Hope Church for a while, other churches, you've, you've probably heard the scripture read on Sunday morning and thought, okay, here comes the now get busy serving, uh, sermon. Use your gifts. So shield yourself when you see the preacher preaching on Ephesians 4 verse 7. You know, each person has received a unique gift of God, and you've received that gift through God's grace working in your life. It's nothing that you have, and there's nothing that you have done to deserve that, that gift. And each person is to use that gift in serving others. And verse 11 says that God has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the people of the church 
for these works of service. Now, because of what this says, um, I think there can be a danger. And that is seeing uh, people, new people, even our new members today, as, um, or how about underused people? People who may not be as active in serving. There's a danger in applying this verse and, and seeing them as fresh meat, quite honestly. You know, fresh meat like, you know, the shark circling in the water and the fresh meat and, oh, let's, let's get them. Um, so I want to say to our new members today, um, and I say this in all sincerity and honesty, you are not, you are not fresh meat. You're not fresh meat. You're not fresh meat. You're not fresh meat. Um, just for ministry teams to snatch up. I want to suggest a different way of seeing people in our church and their acts of service, and it's this. Do acts of service because of the abundance of Christ, not because of the absence of people. Acts of service are an expression of the abundance of Christ, not the absence of people. You're not fresh meat like, oh, we don't have enough people around here. Let's get them. No, acts of service are done out of the abundance of Christ. See, Paul writes something pretty interesting between verse verse 7 and verse 11. And he didn't have to write it. I'm wondering why he did. Verse 7, you've each been given a gift. Verse 11, now use those gifts. But Paul writes something in the middle between verses 7 and 11. I want to read it again. So verse 8, this is what Paul writes. This is why it says, When Christ ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all of the heavens in order to fill the whole Universe. Now, if you're like me, you can get a little confused by that interlude. Paul, why did you write that? What were you getting at? And perhaps it's this, so that we will have this inner shift and in how we see the church and how we see one another in the church and how we see our gifts. See, sometimes you slip into that this, this scarcity mindset that there's so much work to do in the church and we don't have enough people And so everything is stacked up against us. And being a church leader can be wearisome. And you might think that that is exactly how Paul was thinking when he's writing this letter to the Ephesians because he's writing it from a prison cell. He's in prison as he's writing this letter. And you might be thinking that Paul's thinking, oh, everything is just stacked up against me, stacked up against the church. What was us? But that is not what Paul is thinking. He sees things completely differently. Things aren't stacked up against the church for Paul. It's Christ stacking his church up against his enemies and Satan and the powers of darkness, which Christ has already defeated. Christ is the victorious Lord. And that is what Paul is bringing out here. So let me, let me read how the message paraphrase puts this. I like how the message puts it. Christ climbed the high mountain. He captured the enemy and he seized the booty. 
He handed it all as gifts to the people. The one who climbed down is the one who climbed back up, up to the highest heaven, and he handed out gifts above and below. He filled heaven with his gifts, filled earth with his gifts. So friends, Christ has not left the church in scarcity like an empty empty pantry. That is not how Christ has left his church. He's loaded his church full of gifts. He's loaded the world full of gifts. He's loaded heaven full of gifts, which he has obtained when he defeated the devil. And when people use their gifts, this is how I want to see you using your gifts. When people use their gifts, when you use your gift, think of it like you are carrying on the victory parade of Christ. You are carrying on the celebration of Christ's victory. And that's how we use our gifts in the church as a part of the victory parade. Thank you when you use your gifts in serving in ministry. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you the end. Let me tell you the purpose. Let me tell you the big picture of using your gifts. Now, the end is not to get stuff done. That's not the end of you serving using your gifts. It's not to get stuff done. It's not to get coffee brewed. That's not the end of your... It's not to, it's not to get children taught. That's not the end. It's not... Uh, the end of being a greeter is not so that all the bulletins will be passed out. That's not the end of people using their gifts. That's all great stuff, but that's not the purpose. It's not the end. Something mysterious and majestic is happening as the end, the purpose of people sharing their gifts. I'm going to get to that end in a moment, but I want to share something that happened yesterday with you that helps us to see this end that God does. Uh, Yesterday, we had our first meeting of Hope Church in Espanol um, in one of the back Sunday school rooms, and we got some pictures of it that I want to share with you. And pastors Wilmer and Helen Lopez and their family were there. We had a very, very nice time. A handful of people from Hope Church, a handful of family and friends just gathering together and worshiping God and hearing from their family. So I got a couple of pictures. Um, hopefully they're in the, they made it in the slideshow. There's one of uh, the pictures are all gathered together and um, uh, it's just great meeting a lot of new people. Another picture is um, us leading worship. So uh, Pastor Wilmer has got a great voice and there's his son, Manuel, and the not great guitarist um, over there. And uh, a guy named Fernando playing the cajon. Christian Clem, by the way, I don't know if Christian is here. He's awesome. There you are. Uh, Christian served Friday night, Saturday, setting up, running sound. I'm so thank you for you, Christian. By the way, Christian's using his gifts. The end of that is not just to get stuff done. There's something bigger that God does. And Pastor Wilmer was preaching. So the last, the last picture is Pastor Wilmer preaching in Jorge Embel. He's translating. Um, and Pastor Wilmer preached on Psalm 133. How good it is when God's people, when brothers and sisters live together in unity. That's how it starts. At the end of the psalm, 
says why it is so good. The end of Psalm 133. It is in our unity. For there the Lord bestows His blessing, even life evermore. It is in unity that God bestows His blessing. God does something mysterious and magnificent in our unity. Paul writes about it in verse 13 in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Glance down at it. We'll read it one more time. We all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, and then something mysterious and majestic happens. We attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And that is the greatest gift of the church. Unity when Jesus comes down then. And he fills us with his fullness. We receive the greatest gift when we are a united church. We receive the fullness of Christ. That is why unity is the church's highest calling. Because when Jesus comes and lives in us, as our center gives us his full presence, then we get to share that with this broken and fractured and dark world which God has called us to love and serve. So will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God. We thank you that you have drawn near to us. We thank you that you are not a distant God, but you send your spirit. And your spirit dwells in an amazingly powerful and deep way when we are showing unity to one another. Your love, your patience, your humility, gentleness, with one another. And so we ask for that gift today, the gift of humility, which leads to unity. Through humility, humility uh, unity, we receive the fullness of Christ. We ask for that gift. We humbly ask for that gift. Lord, will you call into our minds ways that we can work even more so for unity? Will you call into our minds ways that we can show humility to one another and gentleness and patience to one another? Will you, will you call us to share these gifts that you have given us, not because we think that uh, we have to or else nothing's going to get done, but rather because we want to Proclaim Christ crucified and risen, who is victorious, who lives and reigns for us, and who has already achieved the victory over the powers of hell. And we want to share Christ with this world. Or will you help us to 
share our gifts and gratitude and thanksgiving and an eager expectation of what you will do when we live together in unity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.